Hey, Drilled listeners, we have a different sort of episode for you today. It's actually an interview with me. Sort of strange for me to be on the other side of the mic. I am a big reader of Samantha Hodder's newsletter, Bingeworthy, all about narrative podcasts. So when she asked if she could interview me for it, I said, of course. And then when she suggested that we record the interview and put it in the podcast too, I thought that sounded like a great idea. I hope you enjoy it. An edited version of this interview will also be in Samantha's newsletter tomorrow, along with her thoughts on Drilled. So check that out. I'll stick a link in the show notes. And if you are a fan of narrative podcasts, you should definitely be subscribed to that newsletter. Hope you enjoy this episode, and we'll be back again next week. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. Amy, it's great to connect with you here. Thanks for taking the time. And I just want to say it's exciting to speak to an OG person (laughs) who's worked in the climate news podcast narrative journalism feed. Like it's you have been out there literally shaking these branches for a long time. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Thank you. I'm excited to talk to you. I'm a a reader of your newsletter and find it very, very helpful. So appreciate your work. Awesome. Well, it's the mutual love society here. So this is it. (laughs) So I started listening to season eight and as I got maybe two or three episodes in and I was like, you know, I feel like there's a backstory here. There's like a language that's developed and Mm. I need to understand what it is. So I was, I just stopped and I said, I, I've got to go back to season one. And I went back (laughs) Truly, I, like there was a lot of scrolling, a lot of scrolling to get back to yeah. season one. And it helped me make a lot more sense of the work that you do in this space and the tone that you set. So I guess my question is, do you see it the same way? Coming in cold to a new season, are you always like, well, maybe I should really tell my people to go back to the beginning and start listening again to to understand what we're doing here? It's funny because I have not been thinking about that and probably should a little bit more, but I see it in the, the listening trends a lot, you know, like every time we put a new season out, we have this enormous spike in downloads for seasons, like one through whatever season we're on. (laughs) So I think it's very common. Like if people start with a new season, it's pretty common to go back and listen to at least like we have a couple of more foundational seasons and I I'm trying to think of like how to kind of indicate that in the feed so that people have a little bit of of signposting because there there are a lot of episodes now but season one and season three are pretty like okay here's you know the origin story of climate denial here's the sort of foundation of propaganda that the whole industry has been based on for a long time. And that is good, like, backstory prep for any future season we're doing. 
Yeah, it's true. Like I, I felt like in season eight, I dropped into a grad school seminar, but I was like, yes. I'm, I'm missing the 101 here. What, like, where's the origin of climate denial? And it was shocking to go back to season one and just feel how insidious it is. And to weirdly think of Exxon as both good and then bad and then good and then bad. But like the, the yeah. Genesis story of Exxon was supposed to be good. And man, did it go wrong. Yeah. It's super interesting to listen to that stuff now too, because, you know, in the, in like the seventies and eighties, they were doing this big research and development initiative around all kinds of alternative energy sources. And they had this research center that a lot of people described as like the Bell Labs of energy. So, you know, Bell Labs gave us like the cell phone and the TV satellite and all of this like comms technology that a lot of people depend on. And, and Exxon wanted to do that for the energy industry. So they had people working on, you know, lithium batteries and solar and geothermal and nuclear and everything. And then, you know, market forces shifted and they kind of dropped it and and dramatically changed their approach to especially the question of what what was called back then the greenhouse effect you know and but like it's actually kind of similar to what a lot of the oil companies are doing now where they're like we're part of the transition we're part of the solution we're researching you know biofuels and hydrogen and carbon capture and all of these things. And I think like more and more, the more I've looked at it, I think people have a tendency to look at that past and go, oh, Exxon was a was on the path to solving climate change. And then they they turned. But more and more, I feel like, no, they were doing the same thing that they're doing now, which is we see this potential regulatory risk coming. So we're going to make ourselves part of the solution and we're going to do a bunch of voluntary stuff that makes it seem like we're already on top of this and there's no need for government regulation. Like we want to shape the policies that are that are going to impact our industry. And then, you know, their approach to that shifted from we're going to do a bunch of voluntary work on, you know, alternative energy sources and researching climate change to we're going to invest a lot in making people believe that climate change isn't like a big problem. <laughs> you know? But the point was never like, we're going to save the world from, from us and our industry. It was, you know, how do we get ahead of this to make sure that we keep profits high and shareholders happy? I couldn't help but feeling when I listened to that of what an alternative future might have been had Exxon totally. sort of taken the left yeah. turn instead of the right turn, quite literally. Uh-huh. So, you know, we, we really would be potentially living on a different planet if they right. hadn't done that. And, you know, many yeah. forces, political whims at bay. But I'd like to, to see the importance of that laid out was really quite shocking. And I think in your position, someone who's reported on it for more than a decade, this is a sort of bit the building block foundation. And I guess it must be frustrating to go back to it and be like, yeah, but if they hadn't taken that turn, we would be, we could be here, right. but instead we're, right. we're there or we're there instead of here. It's yeah, it's totally frustrating to see it. And especially to see it really kind of continuing today. Cause, cause I feel like a lot of times it gets talked about as like this thing that happened in the past, but they are still doing kind of the same thing today. Like they no longer claim that, you know, climate change isn't real, but they are still probably the biggest influence on how we're able to deal with the problem of climate change. You know, like that hasn't, that hasn't shifted. They're still the ones that are kind of setting the narrative for how energy is supposed to work, what we're allowed to do, how we're supposed to think about the economy and the environment, all of those things. And it, so, yeah, it is, it is pretty frustrating. The, one, the thing I think is good, though, too, is that stories like that help people realize that these big, like, seemingly impossible entrenched problems are often traceable to, like, some pretty specific individuals or groups of individuals. And for me, that makes it feel like, more possible to to tackle mm-hmm. you know i've seen people talk about climate change as oh it's human nature we're just not good at you know 
making short-term sacrifices for long-term benefit, which is not untrue. But like, if, if like it all gets chalked up to human nature, that's pretty hard for people to feel like there's anything they can do about that. You know, whereas when you're like, oh, actually, there were some pretty specific people who weaponized human nature. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's a good headline, weaponized human nature. Yeah, exactly. But it's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I couldn't help but kind of draw some parallels between Elon Musk and Exxon that, you know, he he purported to and seemed to have reasonable ideas and seemed to be going in the direction, seemed to be doing all kinds of the right stuff. And then Mm -hmm. boy, did he take a turn? And, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. you know, we can honestly talk about that. It's not interesting here, but you see these, you see it as a a more of a template of where it was happening, what could have happened, but instead some precipitating event that made it change direction. And then it totally went in another direction. And wow, look what happens as a result of that. So it's, I think in the the Elon Musk kind of timeframe, it's like, wow, we should really be treading carefully right now and thinking about where this goes because it's just happened and we're in that mushy middle. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there again, sometimes I, I feel like some of it is like, the public and especially the American public. And I would say that that's, this is probably largely to do with, with how like we've been messaged to for, you know, more than a century about what corporations are getting up to and, you know, what sort of captains of industry like Elon Musk are all about. And I, I think there is this desire to want to see these efforts as being like, Elon Musk was trying to address climate change. Elon Musk was trying to make money, guys. <laughs> and he's still trying to make money. The, the the circumstances, you know, by which he can make money may have shifted and therefore his approach has shifted. But like, he is not fundamentally different now than he was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know? This is a guy whose money, you know, came from apartheid South Africa gym mining. (laughs) It doesn't get any dirtier, folks. I know we all love our heroes and are like, you know, oh, he was trying to save the world. No, he was trying to make himself rich. And that has not changed. And, And I really feel like a lot of the the sort of beliefs that he, and I say this also as someone who happened to cover the very early days of Tesla and had a whole lot of dirt on Elon Musk back then that is pretty much the same as what we're hearing now. So I'm like, yeah, no, the public perception of him has changed. He has stopped hiding the less savory aspects of himself. (laughs) But I see actually huge parallels there with Exxon. Exxon was never going to be a renewable energy company. That's not the business that they're in. And for a long time, I looked at it and went, why wouldn't they though? Like, why wouldn't they just embrace a different type of energy technology that they could also make a lot of money at? They could have been in charge of the solar industry or whatever. And the answer is again, like very simple. It just comes back to to numbers on a spreadsheet. They'd already invested mm-hmm. heavily in securing, you know, leases and permits and, and whatever else for a lot of different oil reserves. The Guyana story shows this too, like Exxon secured its access to oil in Guyana in 1999. This is a long play for them. It's like, it's a long play and they do not want to write off those assets. And that's because they are, it's, they're a corporation and that's, you know, corporations are incentivized to deliver money to their shareholders. And that is it. And they have done a very good job of convincing us that they are people with moral compasses, but they're not. And we stop expecting them to be. (laughs) Yeah. So, Mm. yeah. And same with like, you know, I guess Elon Musk is a person. (laughs) Yeah. Human, a fallible person in the end. Maybe he hired his, he fired all his PR people and that's why we get the unvarnished version of him. You know, he actually like famously never really had PR people on staff. He he did have a couple of people who sort of played that role in Tesla and he did get rid of them. So yeah, maybe like the minimal 
number of people he had trying to sort of tamp down on certain things are gone. So he's, but yeah, I mean, for example, if, if like you were a person who actually cared about reducing emissions, you would not be anti-public transit. Right. Right. (laughs) So basic Lego blocks here that are missing before you get the Lego hair and the Lego doodads you put in the Lego hands. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting to look at your, because you've been doing, so tell, you've been doing this for a long time, but tell me, when did you start your podcast? When did it launch? Drilled launched in... It's either late 2017 or early 2018, around there. So like five-ish years. Wasn't there wasn't there something happening in 2016? What were you doing in 2016? I was definitely working in podcasts, but I had not yet launched okay. a climate podcast. Because okay. I started like I, I was a print reporter for a long time. And mm-hmm. in maybe 2015, 2016. I was like driving around listening to NPR and having FOMO, you know, I wish I could do that job. It sounds so cool. (laughs) And then I thought, oh, well, I could probably find, you know, a member station nearby and and learn the basics. And so I emailed my local member station, which was in Reno, Nevada at the time. And Mm -hmm. subject line, would you like an overaged intern? (laughs) 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 And they were like, you know, actually, it it takes us a lot longer to teach people reporting than it does to to teach reporters like how to use audio equipment. So yeah, come on down. I did the one month internship for them and then became a staff reporter there, which was really, really fun for me because A, I had not done, I hadn't actually ever done like local reporting. I had always worked in national so different stuff different different issues different stories yeah like community stories are really interesting and also reno is like a really interesting place to be doing that type of reporting and so yeah i kind of like learned audio a bit there and then you know kind of made the same discovery that everyone makes when they work at either npr headquarters or a member station which is that you know you gather many many hours of tape for any like four minute news feature (laughs) and and that in many cases like all of the kind of storytelling stuff gets cut so I started a podcast with a colleague of mine there probably in 2016 where we took all of these great stories that we were getting and turned them into like a storytelling podcast about the American West it was called oh, wow. Range. Oh, wow. Okay. And it was awesome. Like we did, we actually did an episode on Tesla fanboys because they were such a like archetype in the West. Mm-hmm. At that point. Yeah. And in Reno, like, you know, Tesla was building its big battery factory there. So there was this huge influx of California tech bros into Reno and it was creating some interesting culture shocks there. But we also reported on, you know, the brothels in Nevada, the Cowboy Poetry Festival. There were a lot of of interesting kind of American West type stories. Yeah. Wild. Well, it's it's that sounds like the perfect kind of starter block to getting to transition from print to radio and then radio news to radio storytelling to make your way into podcasting. It's a, it's a clear path. And like this entire time I was trying to figure out, cause I was a climate reporter in print too. And I, I had thought when I started working at the NPR station, I, I kind of had it in mind that like, I wanted to start a climate show. And I had noticed that most of the climate podcasts were interview shows or like chat shows between a couple of, of kind of, you know, policy experts or maybe like tech focused experts. And I didn't understand why there weren't any narrative podcasts on climate because it seemed to me like that would, you know, was like a, an area full of stories. And, but the more I started to try to think of something that would be a good story, I was like, Oh, actually it's harder than I thought. So it took me a good couple of years to kind of like have the idea for, 
drilled. Right. And it came when I was reporting a print story on a bunch of climate lawsuits. And I was sort of sitting in a courtroom in San Francisco. This judge had requested a climate science tutorial Mm. and asked both sides to kind of present what was known about climate change scientifically when, and, you know, then kind of walk him through what people had done with that information. And it was like this, I was like, oh, this is it. I'm, that's the, the idea. I'm going to do a true crime podcast about climate change. Cause it was like the lawyers on both sides, the, the oil company lawyers were like, kind of, they were like out of central casting. I caught them making fun of the environmental lawyers for staying at like a cheap hotel. (laughs) 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 It was like two on the nose. Okay. So yeah, I was like, wow, like you have this whole cast here. And also this allows you to get into all of this documentary evidence that had come out as a result of the reporting that is collectively referred to as the Exxon news story. It's sort of all these documents that actually Exxon itself had donated to an an archive in Mm -hmm. Texas, University University of Texas at Austin Library Mm -hmm. and journalists at Inside Climate News and the LA Times and Columbia Journalism School had kind of like divvied up these documents and, and published a bunch of pieces on them. But I was like, man, in the journalism world and in the climate world, this story is huge, but I feel like it hasn't kind of like broken out of that silo. And and I I was like, I think it's because it's very document heavy and that sometimes it's hard to get people to actually like read those (laughs) documents. So, So it seemed like one of those stories where I felt like audio could really help and like tracking down some of the the scientists that had worked at Exxon during those years and hearing them actually talk about it could help it kind of like land with people. So yeah, that's Makes how sense. it all came about. So your, your slug, which I like is true crime about climate news or something mm-hmm. like that. But mm-hmm. what, what were some of the true crime narrative conventions or narrative structures that you learned from that you built your series on? Oh, yeah. Well, I loved In the Dark. I like how it was sort of an investigative journalism approach to true crime. And I remember hearing Madeline, isn't it Madeline? Madeline Braun, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remembered hearing her talk at a, a conference about this thing that I was also always getting asked about, which is like, you know, but isn't it biased to come to any kind of a conclusion in your reporting or to frame a story in a particular way. And I remember her saying that she was like, well, I kind of feel like if you have all of the reporting receipts and you don't come to a conclusion or you don't present that information in a way that people can understand, that's also a bias. (laughs) And and, uh, I don't know, I just, I liked that kind of approach where I was like, okay, I feel the evidence that Exxon had this information and worked very hard to suppress or spin it is pretty overwhelming. It's like thousands and thousands of documents from their own employees. It's pretty irrefutable. So I don't think this is a situation where I'm going to just say, you know, here's this information, make of it what you will. (laughs) So yeah, I liked, I really liked that show. Of course, Serial, you know, influenced, I think, everyone making podcasts around the time that I was starting to make them and, and like trying to think through, you know, how to get people hooked from one episode to the next and all that kind of thing. Although I will say that like I, for the first few seasons of Drilled, really struggled to do the kind of classic true crime thing of finding a key, like one main character to follow through a story. And it's still something that I struggle with, with climate stories. And a part of that's just be like, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. <laughs> it's like, I, I just am always like, but we have to talk about this and we have to talk about that. And it's hard to find, you know, any one 
person or any one story that can hit like all of those points. And sometimes I am like worried about making sure people have, you know, all of the information. Although I feel like we're starting to expand our website a little bit more and I feel like it's going to free me from, from the podcast having to kind of be the public record of all of this stuff, you know? (laughs) So is that like kind of trying to wear all the hats of being the journalist and the investigative journalist and the host and the storyteller. It's like you're sort of feeling the the burden of being all of those things when, and there's just a lot of pressing information and not not to mention misinformation. You've got to push through in order to get the facts out. Yes. So so does storytelling suffer or get a little off the track when you're, when you've got all those other requirements, so to speak? It definitely can. Yeah. There are definitely times when I am so intent on getting like certain types of information. Cause I also feel like of all of those hats, the one that like I probably just wear the most is the investigative (laughs) journalist hat. And so I will have a tendency to prioritize that stuff versus story sometimes. And that's when I need you know, my editor or producer to kind of read me back in. Um, And sometimes there is, you know, there have been times where, you know, we're like breaking a certain piece of information and, and like it is more important to kind of get that into the public than to make sure that it fits perfectly in the story. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So that happens, you know? Yeah. Yeah. When I contrast season one to season eight, I I feel like in the beginning it was a bit more storytelling, sort of like you you would have done maybe six interviews, but condensed them down and narrated them and put them together. Whereas season eight is a little more direct, you know, one conversation shared and then, you know, following up on a certain point, like there it it, it feels like And this sort of goes to what we were just saying, that it's a lot of important information, but it's less of storytelling and more of sharing the conversation. Would you agree Mm -hmm. with that? I'm not sure I would agree with that, actually. Okay, challenge me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I feel like in the case of season eight in particular, we definitely had a couple of episodes like within the season that were one conversation, but the overall story is, you know, kind of following two specific people through the -hmm. growth of, of an oil industry in Guyana and, you know, what they're doing to kind of try to, to fight back against that and all of that kind of stuff. So. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to hear that. It's certainly not the intention for it to be less storytelling. It's it's not that it's like, I, I don't, I don't mean that in a derisive way. It's just that it was, it was like there was, you condense more information into a smaller pipeline in yeah. season one. And, and now you've, you've expanded a little bit. And I, I, I my, my, my question and my, my working hypothesis here is that you're, your community and your listeners are educated and they're going along with you. So they, they want, they don't want the edited version in some ways they want the unedited version. Yeah. Yeah. Although I do have to be careful because the number one piece of like critical feedback that we get is that, that there's like this baked in assumption that people already know a little bit about, you know, the background of some particular thing. And again, I feel like, a lot of times that's not intentional. It's just, again, again it's me. I, I'm like, I know so much and have been on the same beat for so long that it is definitely hard sometimes for me to see what is new information to people that, that are not coming at it from that perspective or that haven't been listening to the podcast for a long time or, you know, things like that too. That's interesting. So in your team, is there someone who plays the role to sort of be the outside listener or the the non-expert to help? There is, but I kind of have to change that person out every couple of seasons because after a couple of seasons, then they're too initiated too. 
<laughs> Searching for cold ears. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I need like a new fresh ears person, you know, if not every season, then definitely every other season because yeah. it's really helpful. Like I'm definitely incapable of at this point. I am not, I am not going to see the things that are new or confusing or, or right. whatever. And so, so yeah, it does help to have that person. That's a really interesting comment on the craft. You know, you've been, this is one of the only podcasts that I can think of that follows different stories. It's it, like a, the common denominator is climate change and climate catastrophe, but you mm-hmm. and you know, maybe the other common denominator is Exxon, but it changes year to year and you, and you switch it up, but you're still the expert and, yeah. and your knowledge base grows as your listeners go with you. And so to bring someone in who hears it differently is probably a, a key piece of it because yeah. everyone just starts to drink their own, the same Kool-Aid and then listeners totally. come and go and you, you're growing, you're growing, you probably have a, a solid base, but then it adds and it, you know, it shrinks and grows as time yeah. goes on. Yeah. That's, that's a really interesting comment. And we can't always rely on listeners to like self-select to go listen to, you know, season one or other seasons too, you know. And also actually I, I will often try to find someone who's not like a, kind of like a, a f- fresh set of ears from a cultural perspective too. So if we're doing a story in a, in a different place, like for example, we did a season on the Chevron Ecuador case that was in set largely in Ecuador. So I had Mm -hmm. someone who was from Ecuador listen as well to make sure that, you know, we were getting the story from, from their side as well. And also telling it in a way that people there could kind of access. To. Yeah. Well, it's true and that you don't miss the nuance of something and I thought yeah. I thought you I thought you did that well with the with season 8 where you you tried to talk about it from a Guyanese perspective and mm-hmm. like ha- have the person share their opinion about it but then sort of point out how that's challenging from the different frameworks that you look at it, if you're looking at it from a climate perspective or an industry perspective or, or, right. a, or like a, a jobs perspective, it's, right. there's a lot of different challenging ways to see this. And, and unfortunately the bottom line is climate, but that's not always the bottom line in the same way for everyone, or it doesn't mean the same thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, in, in Guyana and like a lot of global South countries or less developed countries, like it is, it's this, it's a really complicated topic to think through, you know, you've got the need to develop, you've got the need to address what they call energy poverty, which is, you know, access to reliable energy. And then in many cases, you're talking about countries that are already being impacted by climate change and will be increasingly impacted, which is going to be like a whole new layer of costs. So I don't know, it's, it's just, it's tough. And then, you know, you have government leaders that are doing what they do everywhere, which is like thinking about how they're going to get elected next term. You know? True, and, true. And what's going to deliver that? Like, is it going to be a big jobs increase and, a, you know, an influx of money into the country in the short term? Or is it going to be a plan for long-term sustainability. I think, you know, we all have a sense of what, how electoral politics work. Mm-hmm. And it's generally not the long-term thing that wins. So, you know, it's, it's tough. And then also very fairly, a lot of the leaders in these countries are sort of like, well, you know, who is the, the U.S. or Norway or the UK or whoever to tell us not to do this when not only did they do it a lot in the past, but they're still doing it. It's not like any of those countries have stopped and are encouraging other countries to stop. They're still all expanding their fossil fuel industries. So, you know, it's complicated. It is complicated. And then you have Norway. I mean, this isn't my area of expertise in any stretch the way it is yours, but a 
paid attention to it over the years. And the, when you contrast the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund and what that's right. done for the wealth of that country, and you realize right. it's all built on oil and it's gas. It's all oil money. Exactly. That's like when, when I hear John Kerry say, no one has a trillion dollars needed to, you know, pay for climate damages, this, that, the other. I'm like, I mean, Norway's got a wealth fund that's all oil money. So... <laughs> And they've managed to support all their cultural industries and send everyone who might possibly think about going to the Olympics one time to the Olympics and put them through. They've used it for many different reasons. And the standard of living there is incredibly high. I, I, you know, and so it's, 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 it's a balance to think about how one country's done it in a way that benefits many, maybe not so much the climate and the planet and the country in the, and the, the oceans, but, but. I don't know. It's the, striking the balance of it is. They is, have done that too, though, which is really interesting. Like I, I think the money that paid because Norway actually paid Guyana to preserve its forests at one point as right. part of one of the UN programs, and I believe that the huh. money for that probably came from the sovereign wealth fund too, which is you know it's it's tough because well yeah that's what they should be spending money on, but they're also kind of telling you know, Guyana had to do conservation while continuing to expand their own fossil fuel industry. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's again, very, it's messy and complicated and yeah. Well, and, and this is the thing I think with climate reporting that is the giant challenge is that it's never, there's no magic bolt. There's no solution. There's nothing because, you know, I think about this sometimes. I don't know if you listen to the, the podcast called Threshold. Oh, I love that podcast. Yes. I do. I do I too. It's so good. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. And the the season that won the Peabody, The Refuge, I think does one of the best jobs I've heard of reporting in a climate and environmental story from an Indigenous point of view as well, where it's taking in all the layers and challenges of what's involved in that discussion yes. and putting it on top of it. And it's just, and like, you, there's no straight, there's no equivalencies. You're Indigenous, therefore you're environmentalist. No, it doesn't. No. no. Like no. that's the trope, but that's not always right. reality. But what's, right. then what's inside of that and what does that mean and how, yeah, I mean, it's, it's got a lot of layers to it. And I think that's one yeah. of the biggest challenges of climate reporting is there are, there's no end to the confusion and daunting amount of communication to get across. Yeah, I know. I think that podcast does a great job in general of like really always kind of showing multiple sides to the issue too. I I, like their first, their very first season on the Buffalo too, same thing. It was so well done and did such a good job of getting, I thought like inspiring empathy for, for all of the different stakeholders in that conversation, even people that you would normally, you know, might be like on, on different sides of an argument with, you could see, you know, Mm -hmm. why they were feeling the way they were about, about different issues. Yeah. They they have a, they have a knack for doing that. That's very helpful. It's true. And it's, you know, similar to what you do, which is just really diving deep into what is, you know, the topic sentence, maybe one word, maybe 10 words, but then just diving deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and seeing where it goes. And that's what will bring you around to, I don't know, not conclusions, but opinions and ideas. And I think maybe that's one of the things that makes these stories successful. Yeah, I think, I think, well, of course I'm biased, but (laughs) 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 but I do feel like you kind of have to have like this depth of information and knowledge to, to make stories out of it too. I don't know. I think it's tough if you don't, if you're, if you don't know the subject that well, then I feel like it's tough to really tell the whole story. Right. So in that line, is is there a way that you've changed the way you structure your seasons since you started? Or or tell me about that from the sort of bigger, you know, the 30,000 foot view year over year or season over season. Yeah. So actually, I've worked on, on a few narrative shows outside of the climate realm over that time. And I think that has really helped me, you know, think through, okay, 
how should we like shift the approach on drilled or how might we structure it? Although I will also say that I don't think I have ever put as much effort into drilled as I have into other people's shows that I'm working (laughs) on. It's like the whole like, you know, cobbler's wife has no shoes thing. And I, so that's like the number one thing that I keep trying to get to of, you know, putting in the amount of, of like time and thought into drilled as, as like I did on, for example, we did the second season of this land with Rebecca Nagel, which is all about tribal sovereignty in the U S. And we also did a show with Stitcher. I actually cannot remember what it was one of those where like, we thought we were working on a whole, a totally separate show. And then it got made into like a season of another show. (laughs) So I can't remember what the, I know I can't, I can't remember what like the overarching show name was, but our show was called Short Creek and it was focused on this fundamentalist Mormon community Oh, you were involved. Oh, wow. I didn't know you were involved in that. I listened to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I was the executive producer on that and we co-produced it with Stitcher. So there again, it was like just a very different type of story. But I feel like I like doing that, you know, maybe once a year or every other year to work on a show that's completely outside of of my subject matter expertise, because I feel like it helps me think about narrative more. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I would say the main thing is that I am always trying to find more character driven stories in climate. So, and it's tough because sometimes like, I feel like I let a lot of things get in the way of the, the narrative sometimes. So like right now we're working on a season where there's a great like clear main character. But my hang up is that she's not from the community that's directly impacted by the story. So I'm like, oh, how do we deal with that? You know? <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting mystery. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I guess structure wise, I think the biggest shift is probably, you know, trying to really figure out who the central character is and, and, or characters if there's two. And I don't always get it, you know, like sometimes I have an idea of who that person's going to be. And then I listen to the tape again and I'm like, it just doesn't sound as compelling as I want it to be. You mm-hmm. know? I remember them being more interesting. It's true. Than yeah, totally. To like I remember them being more interesting or like when I was, reading this as words on a page, it sounded interesting, but you know, the person's tone is kind of flat or, or whatever. So, so yeah, actually like this next, this next season, we're trying to make like a real departure from past seasons in terms of the heaviness of the story and the amount of material, like trying to kind of make it lighter, actually make it somewhat humorous, which is a tall order in climate. (laughs) Makes you laugh just thinking about it, really. I know, I know. So yeah, actually, so yeah, I guess it's just sort of like, I think every season I'm kind of like, how can we do this differently? And how can we make it, you know, how can we make it appealing to people outside of the the climate space? This next Mm -hmm. season too gives us like a really easy opportunity to do some of the one-on-one stuff again as well. So I feel like thinking through, okay, how do we give people that background without weighing down the story? And, and this is the next season of Drilled that you're talking about. The next season of Drilled, yes. Wow. Already at yeah. work on it. You just, I just know. like literally the kind of, bonus episode of season eight. You're amazing. I know. Well, we are, I'm kind of always working on three or four seasons at a time that are all just at like different phases. So yeah. like we're kind of ready to move into production on that season, but I'm also working on two other seasons that are, that are still kind of in the reporting phase. So. And do you have any rules about how many episodes per season? How? I don't. And I'm a big, this is my soapbox is that (laughs) I, I hate it when people are like, you can feel when they've stretched a story to be like, 
eight episodes or more because they wanted to sell that many ads or whatever it is, you know? And I'm like, man, that story would have been awesome at four episodes. (laughs) Right, 100%. So yeah, I really try to just start storyboarding without an idea in mind of how many episodes there are. And I try not to like be afraid to, you know, cut it short if it doesn't really need any more episodes. (laughs) That's, you know, I think that's a brave and honest answer to that. And it's true. Like a story needs to be the length that it needs to be. And there's always other factors at play and to to not listen to the number of ad minutes is a, is a tricky one, but, but yeah, to the audience. So what can the listeners of Drilled be excited about? as we look forward to the to the next season. So we've got some character driven, we've got some engaging town. Yes. Character driven. It's another kind of a legal drama and it is set in Puerto Rico. That's that's all I can say for now. <laughs> that's so fun. I know we're running out of time here, but I I want to just touch on and get you to tell me a little bit more about the community that you've built around your work and ultimately that, you know, helps to fund your work and make it a viable option. So tell me about mm-hmm. who the growth of this and, and who they are and where they've come from and how you directly connect with them. Yeah, that's been sort of like the most gratifying thing to me because when I was working on print and a little bit of audio and I had this idea for a true crime, you know, climate podcast. And I pitched it around to all of the big podcast companies. And they all told me that there was just not an audience for narrative climate shows. And I just was convinced that they were wrong. You know, I was like, I just don't think that's true. And I'm going to just make it on a shoestring and prove that there is an audience. So I, I mean, I made the first season like at night in my car with one sound designer and me and that's it. (laughs) And I feel like we did prove that there was an audience and not only was there an audience, but it it was a pretty engaged audience and it, it has continued to grow over time. And I feel like folks come in from, from all sorts of directions. You know, we've got like, academic researchers who focus on this stuff, you know, for, for their work and are, are interested to find like new and related things. We have completely like new to climate folks. We have activists. I get a lot of emails from academics who are not at all in the climate realm, but are in like history or social science or whatever, and want to get more involved in climate and are kind of finding the podcast helpful from that front. We get a lot of lawyers too, who are either finding other lawyers to partner with through the show or are finding new information that they think could be helpful in cases. Other journalists, activists. It's like a really big uh, group of people. And I do feel like... I still hear from people that have sent the first season to a skeptical uncle, (laughs) (laughs) which I find really gratifying too. I'm like, that's great. Because actually like in the, in the second season, I followed all of these crab fishermen who had decided to sue the top 30 oil companies. It was like a trade group that represented various fishermen, but particularly the crab fishermen were having a bad time of it because there's this, it's so weird. There's a, like a type of algae that grows when the ocean warms that Mm -hmm. the crabs eat. And then when the crabs eat this particular type of algae, they produce a neurotoxin that is deadly to humans. So (laughs) they have to test for this neurotoxin in the crab every year. And the presence or absence of that toxin is what determines whether they can open up the season. Right. So they've had a bunch of seasons in the last five-ish years where either they've had no season at all or it's been like two weeks instead of two months. And there are all of these towns up and down 
the West Coast of the US and Canada that have been kind of decimated by this. I, I know there's like a similar thing happening with lobster and shrimp on the East Coast oh, too. Yeah. And and so I, you know, went out on boats with folks and went to all these different towns and and whatnot. And like more than half of them told me that they did not believe in climate change and that they didn't think that um, that they thought it was sort of like a naturally occurring thing and that human activities didn't have any impact on it. But they were named plaintiffs in this lawsuit <laughs> about climate change. And I was like, how did that happen? That is so interesting. Wow. And they told me that for them, it wasn't about the climate thing. For them, it was about like a basic fairness question. Right. So they had been shown a bunch of primary documents around, you know, the research that various companies were doing. But the most important thing that they were shown was patent applications. So like Shell, Chevron, Texaco, Mobile, Exxon, all of them were taking out patents in the 80s for things like, like an oil tanker that could navigate a melting Arctic or offshore oil platforms that could deal with sea level rise, you know? So they were, they were doing all these things to prepare their industry for Mm -hmm. climate change at the same time that they were telling everybody else that they didn't have to worry about it. And so these folks were like, it doesn't matter why it's happening. They had this information and they used it to prepare and they didn't give us that opportunity. And that's just not fair. And I was like, whoa, that's, (sighs) that's really interesting. So it's something I kind of always have in mind, you know, how do we tap into that mindset in the stories that we're telling so that like people don't listen to them and like already have an ideological block because it's a climate thing, you know, it's like, okay, how do we give people that on ramp to kind of sidestep any like identity or ideological shifts they might have to make to listen to this story. Wow. Well, you're doing the work, the steps to to break it down and make them make everyone, not just them, but all the different stakeholders and to be brought in by a story because as we know, this is this is standing on mutual soapboxes here, but the story is what brings people into a belief system, which is what changes hearts and minds, which is what ultimately yes. will change action, which is the only thing that really matters because we can believe something, but until we do something, it's basically useless. So I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for the, the heart and energy you put into (laughs) people see and understand the relevance and importance of this. And it's been a pleasure to connect today. Awesome. Thank you. is an original Critical Frequency production. Our producer is Sarah Ventry. Sound design, mixing, and mastering are by Peter Duff, who also wrote our original score. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton at the First Amendment Project. And the show is reported, written, and hosted by me, Amy Westervelt. Amy Westervelt.